Hello, my friends. It's time for Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Welcome to the 29th of April, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. Hosted by me, I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, founded on July 18th, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast podcast show is dedicated to exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. It's a special place that we call home, and I hope that you do too. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds, or, you know, somewhere in between, whether you are here to stay or whether you're just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You are a part of our history, so congratulations. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show, we have a special show for you today. Now, Our first conversation is with Maggie Dimmock. She is the curator of exhibitions and collections, along with Kelsey Dalton, assistant curator for interpretation and collections of the Greenwich Historical Society. On the 4th and 18th of May, the public is invited through a curator-guided tour to explore the Bush Holly House with a focus on learning how Japanese art and culture were understood and imitated by American artists in the Costco Park Colony. Visitors will also receive an introduction to the life and work of artist Kenjiro Ito, a Japanese immigrant who frequented the Holly family boarding house and, and established a career as a successful illustrator of books for American audiences. All this was part of a late 19th century craze for Japanese art, aesthetics, and craftsmanship that swept Europe and the United States, transforming radically visual culture. Now wait until you meet my next guest. Deborah O'Connor is the renowned silhouette lady. She is one of the nation's leading artists focused on preserving and perpetuating this centuries-old tradition into the modern era. Now with Mother's Day coming, Deborah O'Connor is ready to work her magic and create silhouette portraits cut in exacting detail. It is said that her resulting images often astounds, for not only does the silhouette capture the likeness of the person, but it also conveys something essential about their character. Now, this quality is particular to the fine artist silhouette cutting and is the reason the art form is still in demand 
many generations after its heyday in the 1700s. You hear my conversation with Deborah O'Connor, and you can learn more and order your silhouettes, not just for Mother's Day, but any time of the year, at thesilhouettelady.com. Now, some of my listeners, that's you, have contacted me of late, pointing out that I've mentioned the existence of both the town of Greenwich and the borough of Greenwich in various historical uh, uh, things that I have shared with you. Now, are you confused? Well, you're not alone. Erwin Edwards noticed this in 1921. You'll hear me share the contents of a column that he published about this very subject in the Greenwich Press. You'll also hear from Judge Frederick Hubbard about the gardens of Greenwich, Round Island, and the foreclosure of the Easy Converse Farm, known in 1931 as Homewood Farms. Now, my friends, there's more Greenwich history, Greenwich, Connecticut history, I should say, than we know what to do with, and you're here at the right place to learn more about it. So you're going to hear about all of that on today's 29th of April 2022 episode. So please stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. 
The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. You know, a number of my listeners out there, and of course that includes you, um, have written to me about something that, uh, quite frankly, I thought was rather intriguing. And that is that you have pointed out to me that uh, throughout my various episodes of this show, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, um, is that I have made mention uh, in a number of my uh, explanations of uh, things that have gone on uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut, about the difference between the town and also uh, the quote-unquote borough of Greenwich. It's a good point. It really is. And I have to admit to you that even though I say that I am a direct descendant of the founders of the uh, town back in the uh, in the 17th century, that this is something that I really didn't know very, very much about at all. Uh, and But I have something that is going to help us all. This is an article that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic. It was written by Erwin Edwards. I believe he was the uh, publisher of the Greenwich News and Graphic. It appeared, or it was published, excuse me, on April 8th, 1921, on the fourth page. And um, it's in his column, Greenwich Life as It Is and Was. The title of the column is, quote, 
the town and the borough, how they differ, a short history. And uh, in order to um, clear all our heads, <laughs> I thought maybe um, we would rely on, uh, on Mr. Edwards, um, who unfortunately is not um, among us. Uh, you know, I mean, this is a hundred years ago. So um, his words live on, as we, um, as we are prone to saying. So without any further ado, I'd like to, uh, to share this with you. I think that you will find it uh, uh, very intriguing. And I think it will answer all of our questions about the difference between the town of Greenwich and what was the borough of Greenwich. So shall we get started? All right. <laughs> all right. There are often inquiries from people who have come here to live um, who are not natives of the state as to what the difference is between the town and the borough of Greenwich. Well, that's a good start. All right. They are puzzled by what to them seems to be two forms of government in one community, and they wonder, too, why it is that some residents have to pay two taxes and others but one. Quote, are there two distinct governments, and if so, what constitutes the distinction, and how is that difference defined, comes a question, quote-unquote, they ask. Well, yes, it must be rather puzzling to one unacquainted with Connecticut town government or who has not read the Constitution of the state of Connecticut, which in some respects is unlike that of any other state. It would take too much space to explain in detail in what ways the town and the borough are distinctive and yet remain as one. Enough to say just now that the town and the borough each has its own form of government and that they do not conflict and both work together in harmony. The reason that they cannot combine is because the constitution of the state does not permit of it. For under our Constitution, the town has certain well-defined duties to perform which cannot be delegated to a city, borough, or village, but it must be carried out by a town. Thus does the Constitution of the state recognize the existence of a town, but says nothing concerning cities, boroughs, or villages. In the settlement of the state, first came the town, then came the borough or a city, depending upon the number of inhabitants, but always within the town, which did not cease to function as a town, and could not be pushed out of existence. In the town, the duties are performed by a board of selectmen, the town clerk, and other officials deemed essential by the town to function legally. A city is governed by a mayor, a board of aldermen, and board of councilmen. A borough is controlled by a warden and a board of burgesses and other necessary officers. Now, let us see what the Constitution of the state says on the subject of towns and how it recognizes the town. Article 6, Section 5 provides that, quote, The selectmen and town clerk of the several towns shall decide on the qualifications of electors as such and in such manner as may be prescribed by law. No city or borough or village can make voters. It is the function of the town and the town only, and to be performed by the selectmen and town clerk. In 1905, this amendment relating to towns was added to the Constitution. That would be Article 32. Quote, Every town shall annually or biennially, as the electors of the town may determine, elect selectmen and the town clerk and such officers of local police as the law prescribes. Greenwich Village was too small to be made a city, and thus a borough came into life. 
The population of the town is 22,122. The population of the borough of Greenwich is 5,930. Practically more than a quarter of the inhabitants of the town reside in the borough, which is very small in size when compared to the area of the town. The boundaries of the borough, roughly stated, may be defined as follows. On the east, by Putts Hill. On the north, about where the new hospital stands. On the west, by Brookside Drive. And on the south, by Railroad Avenue, it being, its shape being irregular. Those living in the borough may, to, may pay two taxes, a town and a borough. Those residing outside of the borough limits pay but one tax, which is that of the town. While the town benefits materially by the borough improvements, it contributes in some ways to help pay the borough expenses. The roads, for example. Perhaps a short history of the borough may be opportune in view of the recent borough election. The borough of Greenwich is 67 years old. The town of Greenwich was settled 281 years ago. In the days of the Indians, this section of the country was ruled over by four tribes of Indians. The southern section, which included what is now the borough of Greenwich, was the home of the, and I hope I pronounce this properly, Saki tribe, which was called Paihomsing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, my friends. The settlers of Greenwich called this portion of the town Horseneck. How the name originated has been told in these columns. It was really the New York and New Haven Railroad that put Greenwich Village firmly on its feet. Previous to the arrival of its first train in 1848, this locality was but a little village. It was when a depot was built and a sign put over it, on which was the word Greenwich, that its active life began. Six years after the station was established, or in 1854, a charter was granted and Greenwich Village became a borough by that act of the legislature. From time to time, amendments have been added to the charter which have enlarged its powers. At the same at the time that the Greenwich Borough came into existence, there were only three or four small stores on Greenwich Avenue and two meat markets. So you can see what the growth of the borough has been in those sixty-seven years. The Greenwich Savings Bank was first was its was the first banking institution organized that was in eighteen seventy. Then came the Greenwich Trust Company in eighteen eighty six, followed by the Greenwich National Bank in nineteen oh six, and later by the Putnam Trust Company in nineteen fourteen. The first newspaper established was the Greenwich Observer, which started in eighteen seventy seven, followed by the Greenwich Graphic in eighteen eighty one, the Greenwich News in eighteen eighty eight, and the Greenwich Press in nineteen ten. At present there are two newspapers in the town and the borough the Greenwich News and Graphic, and the Greenwich Press. The first trolley to appear on Greenwich Avenue was in 1901. The first brick pavement laid in the town was on Greenwich Avenue in 1903. It was added to in 1906 and was completed to Railroad Avenue in 1908. The Borough Court was created in 1889. Why it was called the Borough Court, no one seems to know, for its jurisdiction extends over the entire town. It is a town court. Perhaps it was given its name because the court is held in the borough. Some think that the day is not far distant when the borough as such will go out of existence and a government 
all one will control the town, but what its form will be remains to be decided. Some say the sooner, the, <laughs> the sooner the later. Well, we've heard that before. Uh, all right. Well, that was uh, from the Greenwich News and Graphic from Friday, um, April 8th, 1921. Mr. Irwin Edwards, uh, who I believe was the publisher of the Greenwich uh, News and Graphic, is the author of that um, that article that appeared in his column, Greenwich Life as it is. It's an interesting explanation of the um, difference between what was the borough of uh, Greenwich, which encompassed basically just the immediate uh, downtown area, and uh, the rest of the um, of the town of Greenwich. So I hope you found that very enlightening. I have to admit, when I found this uh, this column, I, I certainly found it very useful. And again, I hope that you do too. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am your host. My friends, it's Asian Heritage Month at the Greenwich Historical Society, and on the 4th and the 18th of May, the public is invited to enjoy a curator-guided tour to explore the Bush Holly House with a focus on learning how Japanese art and culture were understood and imitated by American artists of the Koskop art colony. Now, visitors will also receive an introduction to the life and work of artist Genjiro Eto. He was a Japanese immigrant who frequented the Holly family boarding house and established a career uh, as a successful illustrator of books for American audiences. Now, all of this uh, was part of 
a late 19th century craze for Japanese art, aesthetics, and craftsmanship that swept Europe as well as the United States, and it radically transformed visual culture. My guests today, and I am going to be uh, coming to you from the uh, tavern at Bush Holly House uh, on uh, Strickland Road in the Koskov Historic District, is Maggie Dimmock, curator of exhibitions and collections, along with Kelsey Dalton. She is the assistant curator for interpretation and collections of the Greenwich Historical Society. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, well, welcome, Maggie Dimmock. Start by, start by telling us about yourself and what you do at the Greenwich Historical Society. Sure, thanks, Jeffrey. Um, well, I, uh, my name is Maggie Dimmick, and I work here as the curator for exhibitions and collections. And so in that role, um, what I'm responsible for is overseeing our uh, museum collections. Um, so that comprises um, all of the historic furnishings and artwork that are on view currently in the Bush Holly House Museum. Um, as well as then we have a large collection of, of pieces that are currently not on view, and that includes anything from historic farm tools and textiles, quilts, clothing, um, any number of artworks, you know, works on paper. Um, so my role is, is overseeing and caring for that collection and then also overseeing our rotating exhibitions program. Um, and I'm assisted um, in doing that with... Um, my assistant curator, who's also here, Kelsey Dalton, who really takes a lead role in especially not only our collections management, um, but also taking a lead on uh, overseeing the interpretation and our docent guides in the Bush Holly House. Okay. All right. Well, Kelsey, first of all, I think I'm meeting you for the first time. You are. I am. Well, today is a lucky day. Good. <laughs> and I am so pleased to meet you and welcome to Greenwich Historical yes. Society. Um, it is a pleasure to have you. All right. Tell us about what you do here. Thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you for having us. So my name is Kelsey Dalton, um, and as Maggie just said, I'm the Assistant Curator for Interpretation and Collections. So my job is really to oversee the interpretation, particularly of the Bush Holly House. So I was brought on to really sort of delve into the stories that we're telling in the house. What new stories do we want to be telling? How can we maybe be telling the stories that we already are telling a little bit better. Um, and then as Maggie said, also just really helping sure up our collections care um, for those objects and, and um, artworks. Okay. All right, now, Kelsey, I think I will uh, pose this to you. Mm -hmm. um, and all, uh, According to the website, um, and, and I quote this, it says, in the late 19th century, a craze for Japanese art, aesthetics, and craftsmanship swept Europe and the United States, radically transforming visual culture. Um, and that, I think, is very, very phenomenal. So I was wondering if you would talk to me and to my audience about the origins of this, at times, intense fascination with Japanese art. Yeah, of course. So um, this craze for Japanese art, occasionally we refer to it as Japanism, um, or to use the French term, Japonisme. And so during this time period, um, you know, right around the middle and the end of the 19th century, J the country of Japan is reopening after more than two centuries of its seclusion policy. So this policy um, forbade, for the most part, trade with the outside world, and it really limited, um, to the point of almost complete restriction, travel in and out of the country, both by um, foreigners and by Japanese nationals as well. 
And so when this ends with the Perry expedition um, in the 1850s and in a few treaties that happen after that, for the first time in, in over 200 years, the, the world has access to Japanese culture and Japanese visual arts um, for the first time again. And there's just an explosion of interest. Um, this is also sort of a, towards, towards the end, but, but still very much so at a high point of the popularity of Yukioi prints. So if you think of the classic as Hokusai's The Great Wave. Um, so this very, very this, this style of art that is so different from what's being done in Western art at the time really takes particularly the French Impressionists by storm. Um, they're very interested in that sort of flattened view, the remarkable colors, um, some of the subject matter, and they really run with it. Um, and, and through them, you get the effect on the American Impressionists, which are so important to our interpretations of the Bush Holly House. Um, and so Japanese art, definitely a huge influence, but as well, you also see Japanese carvings, um, Japanese textiles, uh, Jap Japanese and even further afield, just Asian um, gardening and, and landscape design in general. All of these things um, are becoming very popular and are spreading you know, through word of mouth, through the traveling of prints, but also through these um, world fairs, centennial exhibitions that are also very popular at the time. There's quite a few concentrate, quite a few important ones that are concentrated um, at the end of the 19th century that become, you know, sort of hubs of, of the spread of, of Japanese men in the interest in Japanese culture. Okay, all right. Now, um, as a follow-up to that, I was wondering if you could give us some uh, specific examples of how Japanese art manifested itself in Western visual culture in the late 19th century. Yeah, sure. Um, so one, one sort of famous example might be thought of um, as Monet's White Bridge. Um, so that sort of very famous Impressionist painting is definitely inspired with the white arched bridge um, by, by Japanese art and Japanese landscape design at the time. Um, Mary Cassatt is definitely very influenced by woodblock prints. Um, she does, she experiments again with sort of this like flattened view. Um, and then if I were to bring it a little bit closer to home in terms of artists who stayed at the Koskov Art Colony at the Bush Holly House, um, John Henry Twachman is, uh, as one of the leaders of the American Impressionist group, um, is also very, very influenced by Japanese art, particularly as it sort of trickles down through French Impressionism. Um, and so he does several of his own paintings of white bridges. He actually built white bridges in, in, in his own backyard um, that are reminiscent both of Monet's white bridge and of the Asian landscape design that, that inspired the original as well. Um, and so actually we have, a, we have a diary reference of another artist, Theodore Robinson, referring to Twachtman visiting the 1893 MOFA exhibition on Hokusai. And so, you know, he would have seen some of these fantastic woodprints that are still part, um, you know, of our, of our sort of common, uh, common language about art and Japanese art. Even as far back as over 130 years ago, Twachtman is being influenced by the same thing. Um, so... So, so I would say that those are a few a few big ones. Mm -hmm. um, 
All right. All right. Excellent. My God. Now, all right, Maggie. Let me let me pose this to you, if I could, from the um, from the Historical Society website at GreenwichHistory.org. Um, it says American painters associated with the Cuscup Art Colony, including John Henry Twachman and J. Alden Weir, drew inspiration from the Japanese, and I, I hope I pronounce this properly, Ukiyo-e <laughs> woodblock prints. Um, I'll get dinged for that if I got it wrong, sorry. But um, can you elaborate on this art form and what the Cuscup artists said about them? Sure. So, um, I mean, when we're talking about um, Ukiyo-e woodblock prints, I mean, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's a, a highly, it draws from a very traditional um, printmaking form that obviously was, was, you know, quintessentially Japanese. I mean, the kind of era that we're really speaking to are more sort of the, the late 18th and, and 19th century, um, you know, these, these highly graphically intense um, prints that would be made by these, um, you know, master artists that were, that were, you know, done in multiples, of course, you know, yeah. as, as, as is the case for any kind of printmaking, which were, um, because of the increasing trade with Japan, and not only outside of the country of Japan, but even sort of within Japanese culture, were just sort of more and more available as kind of print culture, mm -hmm. um, and found a really, really ready market among both European collectors and also especially American collectors, and not just collectors, but you know, museum collections. In, in the United States, you have sort of the early, I mean, not the very beginning, but sort of an early expression of starting to develop um, more international collecting mm -hmm. focuses for a lot of museums. like. Kelsey mentioned the Museum of Fine Art in Boston, which was sort of early on in collecting Japanese art and certainly, um, you know, woodblock prints. The Brooklyn Museum Brooklyn is another Museum, one. Yeah. Um, so these are, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, I think a lot of people are probably familiar with, for example, you know, Hokusai is the, the Great Wave. I think Kelsey had mentioned this. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are, these are prints that... Um, are characterized by, you know, brilliant color, oftentimes really sort of firmly, um, fir firm lines, you know, and a, and a flatness mm -hmm. that for a lot of, you know, European and American artists mm -hmm. was just kind of revolutionary. And it influenced not just print culture. So there were a lot of artists, you know, Western artists who start taking up woodblock printing in and of itself as an art form, but then also borrowing the kind of compositional elements of those prints and applying them to other forms of art. Sure. You know, so for example, um, and, and people, like if we're trying to talk about the Cascob colony and, and, you know, the way that we, the, the people that we're talking about when we give tours of the Bush Holly House, I mean, it's not so much that someone like even Twachtman is himself necessarily collecting these prints. He may not be in a position to be collecting, but certainly, you know, as Kelsey mentioned, he may be visiting them in museum collections. We know that that was happening. And actually, I'm going to read from Kelsey. I found a great example of a, a letter that's part of our collections here, the, sure. the Holly McRae papers. So this oh, yeah. is a letter that uh, the artist Elmer Livingston McRae wrote um, who of course was married to Emmett Constant Holly, and so he was he was living here at the the Bush Holly House, and so this is in 1898, and he's talking to his wife Emma Constant Holly about a visit he'd made to a friend's house, mm -hmm. and they're um, they're talking about Japanese art, and he mentions um, 
basically a, a Miss Martin who's showing him a Japanese print that she has in her collection. And he says, you know, it's very simple. It's just these little fishes that are swimming in right. water right in the middle of the picture and a big water lily leaf floating on the water. And up in the right-hand corner, or I should say the lily leaf is in the right-hand corner, the water itself seemed to catch and reflect the most marvelous colors. The whole thing is simply gorgeous in its simplicity. Yes. So that's, I think, the key. It's this yeah. idea of simplicity, sort of harmony and elements that was just kind of like a lightning rod for a lot of these artists. Oh, yes, yes, very much so. All right, let me, uh, um, Kelsey, let me uh, get this uh, or, or focus this, um, you know, back to you. Um, again, from the GreenwichHistory.org website, yeah, it, it says, artist child Hassam frequently dressed his models in Japanese kimonos while posed in the colonial surroundings of the Bush Holly House and boarding house you know, proprietor Constant Holly McRae filled the house with Japanese-inspired floral, floral arrangements. I have to admit, I would not mind being there for that. That would have been quite something. I was wondering if you would talk to us about that. I mean, can you imagine any of us being dressed up like that and posing as us? So uh, tell us, uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think that this, as, you, as you're saying, this is yeah. such a fascinating time. Yeah. Um, in American history because, you know, one of the things that this this quote from the website really pulls out is that um, Hassam in particular in his paintings is pulling these sort of bits and pieces of Japanese-inspired imagery mm -hmm. that he finds fit into his overall aesthetic. They're very comfortably placed there. They become part of... Um, part of really his vision rather than taking it over and becoming, you know, some kind of direct imitation of what he's seeing. Um, so maybe to state that a little bit differently, you know, a woman dressed in a kimono is still surrounded by this very American colonial salt box setting. Yes. Um, and so, you know, America at this time period has also still fairly recently had um, it's centennial celebration, which brings on this this huge upsurge of patriotic fervor. But then also these these other you know worldwide influences that are, are coming here faster and faster. And so when you look at something like Child Hassam's The Goldfish Bowl, which is probably one probably his most famous painting, mm -hmm. you know a woman in a Japanese kimono with these goldfish, which are pretty clear references back to like Japanese koi fish um, but still surrounded by a very kind of sunny floral French impressionist but also American garden garden-esque after afternoon um, so so there's it gets to the point particularly within Hassam's works where there is a, a comfort with these Japanese themes that feel um, almost subliminated rather than self-conscious. Um, and I think one of my favorite actually facts about, not directly about the goldfish bowl, but in relation to it, is by the time that painting um, is done, I want to say at least some of the, some of the, um, you know, the sketches for it are done in like the 19, 1912, 1913. You can actually purchase a Japanese kimono by that point in the Sears Roebuck catalog oh, in wow. the United States. Oh, wow. They've become so popular um, and so many yeah. women want them to sort of, you know, lounge in or, or for their perceived exotic quality. 
um, that that you can really get them anywhere. They've be, they've become part of part of the cultural language in the United States. Yeah. Um, and just to touch on Emma Constant, you know, she's clearly inspired by the Ikebana style of flower arranging, which is sort of this this ancient um, Japanese art of flower arranging that began with um, you know Buddhist altar arrangements. Um, and there were several. There were a few other women actually in the area, um, right on Glen Avon Drive in Riverside, the Arai family. Um, both Tatsu Arai and her daughter-in-law Mitsu Arai were talented um, floral arrangements in the Ikebana style, uh, and they, they definitely went head to head in some competitions, but also likely learned a lot from from one another um, in terms of not just, you know, traditional Ikebana, but then also bringing in the American influence into that kind of style. Yeah, and Emma Constant's arrangements were, were very popular for the Kaskab um, right. colony artists Absolutely. to portray in their work. So um, we're very lucky to be able to see many of her designs in, in the full full sort of riotous color that Impressionists bring to their work. Oh, that's fantastic. That's cause for celebration. Now, I'll have to tell you, there's a name, of course, that we know very, very well here, uh, Kenjiro Eto. And as it turns out, he really was one of the stars of the Koskup Art Colony, a unique individual. His influence was special and long-lasting. Um, I, I don't know who wants to take this question, but uh, maybe you do, Maggie. Start by telling us about his life and how he first encountered the American Impressionists. Well, certainly, I mean, I think that um, being able to tell uh, Eto's story at, as part of the story of the Kaskabar colony yeah. is sort of one of the great um, pleasures of being able yeah. to, to, you know, and especially being able to, to sort of broaden or, or deepen that understanding is something that we've been really interested in. Um, a lot of what we know about Eto comes from research done by, for example, the art historian Susan Larkin yes. or um, someone like Harry Sakamaki, who had been a, an educator and involved a really dedicated docent guide here for years. So we know we know quite a lot about Eto. I think we could know a lot more. Yes. Um, but what we do know is that he was born in Japan. His family was from Arita, and so he, which which of course was a, a great center of porcelain production. His family owned a porcelain production factory. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's very likely that when he immigrated to the United States, which was in 1893, um, he went to Chicago um, and was most likely um, working at the World's Columbian Exposition okay. that was taking place there and probably in the Japanese pavilion. So probably some sort of you know, demonstration or, or exhibition of, of some of his family's, um, his family company wares. Uh, but what we know is that probably he, once he got to the United States, he wanted to stay here. And not only that, but he really wanted to become an artist. And okay. he wanted to study art really in a Western tradition. So he eventually ends up in New York City. When he's in New York, he enrolls at the Art Students League. And that's where he starts to study under John Henry Twachtman. Mm. And it's through Twachtman that he comes to Koskob, because, of course, Twachtman had moved in 1890. He purchased a house in Greenwich and then also began running these summer art courses here in, in the Koskob section of town, um, basically centered around the Holly family's boarding house, which, of course, today is the Bush Holly House. Yeah. So Eto not only got to know Twachtman, um, but also got to know one of Twachtman's students, who is the artist Elmer Livingston McRae, who I had mentioned before has not only 
was a student of Twachman's, but also then eventually got to, to be you know, integrated into the Holly family through marriage. So Eto was friendly with McRae. He was one of the students that came out to Coscob and stayed with the Holly family several times. We know that he got to know the family very well. And, and essentially, you know, the, the sort of trajectory of his life is that he was, he was painting, he was exhibiting in New York City, he was known as a floral painter primarily, um, and he enjoyed some measure of success, um, but he did eventually return back to Japan. So sometime in the first decade of the, the 20th century, he actually did move back to Japan. Mm -hmm. But then he returned here periodically um, several times until about 1911. I think sort of the last visit he made to the United States was in 1911. Um, and some of, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead in your questions, but I know, you know, some of the projects that he was, that were, that from what we understand that he was working on is he, um, got to be quite a, a basically in-demand illustrator oh, yes. for, for both children's books and then some other, you know, novels. And in particular, he would, um, often contribute illustrations to books written for American audiences or Western audiences about Japanese subjects. Hmm. So, for example, one of the authors he collaborated with several times went under the pen name Ms. Morning Glory. <laughs> but in actuality, this Ms. Morning Glory was a, a Japanese uh, man, um, and his name was Yone Noguchi. And in fact, Yone Noguchi is the father of the sculptor, the very well-known sculptor, Itsamo Noguchi. Oh, okay. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of these books and these illustrations were often dealing with sort of Japanese subjects, yeah. but and again, sort of feeding into this popularity of, of Japanese culture, but but again, for a Western audience. Okay, all right, very, very good. All right. Well, as, as, we do, as we start to close today's conversation, um, I was wondering, and I address this to, um, to the both of you, um, as, or you know, whoever, but summarize uh, for us the, the legacy and the contributions of Asian culture on the Costco Bart colony, and, uh, and why even now, we're in the early years of the 21st century, it holds such a unique fascination uh, to uh, to us today. So talk to me about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can start, and, and I think Kelsey might have something to oh, add yeah. here, too. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in terms of kind of the legacy of, of Asian culture and the Koskab art colony, I mean, there's, there's certainly, and I think we've talked about this a lot, there's sort of a visual culture aspect here, and, and there's, there's sort of the, the fact that even in sort of the broad field of American Impressionism, we yes. can point to so many Japanese precedents visually. Um, but I think that whether through the, the presence of, of Eto in particular, um, or sort of a broad interest in sort of a, a, a Japanese culture in a way that went beyond just the aesthetics among a lot of these Koskab artists. Mm -hmm. We know that there was, um, there was quite an interest in Japanese culture. I mean, we've, we have, and I think we, we sort of get a lot of entertainment in some ways out of photographs of some of these young men and women who mm -hmm. we know were students of Twachman who would um, you know, practice Japanese tea ceremonies. Oh, yes. Um, and of course, you know, we had spoken a little bit already about the legacy of Ikebana and Japanese tradition in floral arranging as it kind of uh, found its way into um, the work of someone like Constant Holly McRae, who was a very, you know, became a very um, well-known floral designer, but, but was borrowing in many ways, sometimes informally from kind of Japanese design. So it really permeates a lot of the kind of atmosphere 
that we're trying to kind of evoke for people when they take a tour, at, at least of the portions of the Bush Holly House sure. that we interpret to that era of the art colony. Yeah. Um, of course, we do a dual interpretation. So you're also, as you're visiting the Bush Holly House, you're also learning about this earlier era of the American Revolution and the Bush family, and not only the Bushes, but the yeah. enslaved members of their household yes. as well. But it's, so, you know, there's there's a lot of history that kind of you get out of a tour, mm-hmm. um, but certainly a big part of that, I think, is talking about this kind of um, really Japanese-tinged, um, as I said, atmosphere yes. that was present around the 1890s to 1910s. All right, very, very good. Kelsey. Yeah, I, I, I guess the only thing that I would really add is, I mean, I don't think that the effect of this period um, of Japanese, can, the effect of that on Impressionist painting, I don't think can be overstated. And I think that Impressionism, you know, it continues to draw us today on this very sort of essential level. I think it's a very accessible style of painting in a lot of ways. It, it really, um, it, it continues to draw our eye, it continues to draw our emotions. Um, and so many of the art forms that come after it are also inspired in other ways. And so when you, when you think about, you know, Impressionism, I think we so often think about it as like sort of the beginning or the seeds of, of a modernist art movement that come later. Um, and then when you think about how essential Japanese was to that movement, it's sort of like it, it, it really puts into perspective just how important that was moving forward and, and still today. Well, Maggie Demick and Kelsey Dalton of the Greenwich Historical Society, I can't thank you enough for this. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm very, very much myself into Asian culture. Uh, and have been for many, many years. Of course, as many people know, I also live in Hawaii um, and uh, do travel over to Asia from uh, from time to time. Now that we're getting over all of the um, uh, issues that we've had for the last uh, couple of uh, years, I'm hoping to get back into that again. And uh, but in 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 absence of that, it's really, really wonderful to be able to go to the Bush Holly House and to be able to you know, have that experience here at home. So I want to thank you for spending time with me. And really, my friends, I urge you all to go on these uh, tours of Greenwich Historical Society. Um, please, you can learn more about this at GreenwichHistory.org. For further information, you can also call 203-869-6899. The Bush Holly House is located at 47 Strickland Road, Coscob, Connecticut, 06807. Ladies, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for thank having you. us, My next guest is Deborah O'Connor. She is the renowned silhouette lady. She is one of the nation's leading artists focused on preserving and perpetuating this centuries-old tradition into the modern era. Now, with Mother's Day coming, Deborah O'Connor is ready to work her magic and create silhouette portraits cut, quote-unquote, in exacting detail. It is said that her resulting images often astounds, for not only does the silhouette capture the likeness of the person, but it also conveys something essential about their character. Now, this quality is particular to the fine artist silhouette cutting and is the reason the art form is still in demand decades, even generations after its heyday in the 1700s as we are now in the early years of the 21st century. I am so delighted to share my conversation with this remarkable woman, Deborah O'Connor. Uh, you can learn more about her and you can order your silhouettes 
at thesilhouettelady.com. I'm going to spell that for you. T-H-E-S-I-L-H-O-U-E-T-T-E-L-A-D-Y.com. Again, that's T-H-E-S-I-L-H-O-U-E-T-T-E-L-A-D-Y.com. My friends, please place your orders not just for upcoming Mother's Day, but any time of the year. They make remarkable gifts. Deborah O'Connor, welcome to the show. My audience is meeting you for the first time, and so would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I first began cutting silhouettes in the late 70s. I had also gotten divorced around this time, and suddenly I needed to generate an income. And my most marketable skill was drawing. So I had been doing some charcoal portraits at local events, but I found the medium to be very messy in a situation where it wasn't easy to keep your hands clean in between portraits. But it wasn't just the messiness. I think it was also I didn't like the quality of the portraits that I was doing because I would much rather have spent several days on a portrait than try to do one in 10 minutes, and that's what you had to be able to do in order to make a living at these fairs. And then something brought to mind the silhouettes that I had seen of my best childhood friend, Jan, and her sister, Bonnie. And these were very small silhouettes. Uh, They were cut at Old Orchard Beach in Maine sometime in the early 50s. And when I first saw them, it would have been the mid-60s, which would have been about 10 years after they'd been cut but it was so clearly evident which sister was which. Even though in life, their coloring and features were almost identical. And there was a certain feeling, it was like a jolt that went through me when I looked at these silhouettes. Uh, It's hard to describe. I couldn't imagine how the artist had managed to capture them so perfectly in such a simple portrait. So many details are eliminated, and color being a major one, and yet the silhouettes were instantly recognizable. It was them, and it couldn't have been anybody else but them. A lot of people have described this as the ability of a silhouette to capture the essence of a person. And I was truly intrigued. They also say that good art should stimulate the emotions of the viewer, And those silhouettes had certainly done that to me. And this was without the wow factor of watching them being cut freehand. So they were standing on their own as really great little pieces of artwork. I also think a good fairy must have whispered in my ear or the hand of God reached out (laughs) or the cosmos conspired to make it happen because I acted on that inspiration and I decided to go about learning how to cut silhouettes. Um, I had heard that there was a silhouette artist on Cape Cod, and this was in the days before we had computers and GPS. I decided I would just wing it and drive down there blindly and see if I could find this person. And it sounds silly, but this was quite an adventurous thing for me to do at that time in my life. So I went, but I didn't find her that weekend. Uh, Instead, I came across a group of portrait artists. And one of them, when I brought up my interest in silhouettes, he recommended that I stick with it. 
he said that there were hardly any artists that were doing it anymore and that it could be a very good thing to pursue. So by this time it was getting dark and I was nervous about driving home and I decided I'd find a place to stay the night. And I found an inn, went in and I stood waiting at the front desk for ages and nobody came. <laughs> so finally I just went and found an empty room and went in and went to sleep. And I was praying that nobody was going to come in the middle of the night and uh, luckily no one did. So in the morning I settled up the bill and I went home. And uh, it wasn't a wasted trip because I had received some encouragement, if not an actual lesson in silhouette cutting. So then it wasn't until I was actively out doing silhouettes at an art show that I ran into Joyanne McConnell. And this would be the artist that I had been seeking on that weekend. Naturally, when you're practicing a rare art, then it's somewhat horrifying to find out that two rare artists are booked at the exact same event. So uh, typically we would go out of our way to avoid each other, but eventually uh, we would start getting together at a yearly scone meeting. Scone stood for Silhouette Cutters of New England. And at this point, we had discovered that there were four of us that were actively cutting silhouettes around New England. And that would have been Joyanne McConnell, Jean Comerford, Carol LeBeau, and myself. Deborah, would you explain to us your technique and the process of producing a silhouette? The process that I use is to cut freehand using a folded sheet of silhouette paper. Uh, silhouette paper is black on one side and it's white on the other side. So when you're cutting, you're looking at the white side so that you can see what you're doing. I use a pair of four inch embroidery scissors and uh, I look at the subject and I cut their image from the paper. And when you do this, you try to keep your eyes on the subject more so than on the paper. And when you are really in the zone, you'll be looking at the paper hardly ever. You keep your eyes on the subject most of the time. Uh, you produce two silhouettes at once because the paper is folded. And when you open it out, what you see is a left-facing and a right-facing silhouette. And sometimes people want three or four silhouettes, so you can add a, another folded sheet and produce up to four at once. After that, it's tricky because you're going to compromise the detail trying to go through so many layers of paper at one time. Those extra copies are traditionally sold at half price of the originals and they're great gifts. And then the silhouettes are taken and glued onto cardstock and matted or framed. Deborah, talk to us about the term silhouette. What's its origin and historical roots? The term silhouette was derived from a French minister of finance around the mid-1700s, Etienne de Silhouette. So prior to be called silhouettes, these portraits were referred to as shades or shadows. Uh, Etienne de Silhouette was not popular and he had very stringent financial policies. He also happened to be an amateur shade cutter. So shades or silhouettes were considered to be a cheap art form as compared with painted portraits or sculpture. 
and they were at the height of their popularity around this time because they filled a real need for affordable portraiture for the common person. But Etienne was virtually laughed out of office because the French people began to refer to anything that was considered being cheap as being a la silhouette. And as for the roots of the art, um, it goes back to the 14th century. But there were uh, four countries mainly involved when it was in its heyday, and that was uh, France, Germany, England, and the United States. I had read that uh, the French really didn't like silhouettes that much, even though they had court silhouette artists. Uh, they often embellished the silhouettes, um, sometimes with blue hands. I remember seeing one artist did. Um, they really preferred fancier things. And it, in England, the art flourished right alongside the school of British miniature painting. It was very popular in America and not so popular in Germany. Most of the silhouettes at this time were uh, used in medical encyclopedias. In America, many of the artists were itinerant and they would travel from town to town and until the invention of the camera or the development of film, the art was the only thing that the common person could afford. So the silhouettes were very busy. I believe there were at one time about 200 artists that were traveling around, probably in both in Europe and the United States. So with the invention of the camera, the silhouette took a decline in popularity. And then all of a sudden, most of the artists that either traveled town to town or had studios of their own would begin finding themselves on a boardwalk at some seaside resort. So suddenly what had been considered a fine art now was something of a sideshow attraction at a carnival. And people would begin to think of it more as a form of entertainment or some kind of magic. I also think that in a lot of cases, uh, less skillful artists could get by if they happened to be exceptional at showmanship and uh, maybe didn't have the best artistic skills. How did you learn to become a silhouette artist? I taught myself the art because, as I mentioned, I couldn't find anyone that I could ask for advice. So I had read that silhouettes were cut freehand, and I found this hard to believe that you could have any sort of control over your hands up in the air. Uh, so I began teaching myself by making a quick sketch before I would cut. And after about a year, I finally got up the nerve to try freehand. And I discovered that you got a much more accurate rendering when you're not trying to follow the drawn line, but you're cutting directly from the subject. The information is going directly from your eye to your hand. And there is a certain state of mind that you get into. I call it the flow state. 
when you have a continuous line of customers, at some point you literally stop thinking and you really become one with the line that you're creating. And this is something you only discover when you get really, really busy, but this is the place you wanna to be to do a great silhouette. And if you can manage to hold on to this state of mind while you also stop to deal with gluing and taking the payment, I consider that to be an art in itself, like being a short order cook. And that's why I prefer to have other people handling the gluing so that I can just stay in cutting mode. So in the very beginning, I practiced on friends and family and also from images that I'd find in books. And just recently, I stumbled on an old photo from one of my first silhouette events. I didn't have much of a setup. I had a piece of paper stuck on a tree and the price said it was $2.50 for the silhouette. And then I noticed the samples that I had were pretty strange. <laughs> there was uh, a silhouette of Julius Caesar and another one of Samuel Beckett. I think I probably had George Washington up there too. So I guess when I started out, I hadn't really practiced on that many live people or I would have had a picture of a cute baby up there. What is the most important task and result a successful artist like you aims for? Well, for me, it's to see that jolt of recognition on the person's face. You know when they react that way that you have hit the mark. Occasionally, you'll have a mother that actually bursts into tears of joy, not horror, hopefully. I think once someone said, oh my God, it's more me than me, or quite often <laughs> they'll say, Oh my God, that's scary. I always hope to do a good job, but when you see them have that jolt of surprise, you know that they've experienced that thing that's unique to silhouettes. I've seen your website at thesilhouettelady.com that, and, and, and seen what your, your work entails, and I know that you travel. So what do you think excites people the most about silhouettes? Not just those who are the subject of your work, but also those who receive them as gifts. Yes, my work does involve a lot of travel. And uh, in the early years, it was really difficult because I have no sense of direction. So taking off uh, you know, an old car with a map, <laughs> driving two or three hours to get where you're heading, it was always a big challenge. And then, thankfully, they invented GPS, and what a difference that made. So now that I'm 70, I don't like driving much at all, and I'm really hoping somebody like Elon Musk invents teleportation, which would make it a lot easier getting where I have to go. Most of the people who receive silhouettes as gifts, I would think, are grandparents or mothers, if they happen to have a particularly thoughtful husband who arranges to have this done for them. I would think anyone would be happy to have portraits of their loved ones. Now, one thing people might not realize at first is that silhouettes really do become cherished family heirlooms. And one reason for this is that they tend to stay hung upon the walls for much longer than you would display a photograph. There always comes a point with photos where the styles have changed so much that you can't relate to the person in the photo as being you. 
In fact, I recently was going through some old photos and I was wondering who that weirdo was that looked like David Bowie in a jumpsuit. And then I realized it was me back in the 80s. So <laughs> you tend to stick these images away or tear them up. However, the silhouette doesn't become obsolete in this way and it will remain recognizable forever. In fact, I did read that historians have attributed the survival of so many intact silhouettes from years past to the fact that they do tend to stay hung untouched upon the walls of a home. All right, how can people contact you and learn more about your work? Uh, people are welcome to contact me by phone, 401-212-1632, by email, deborah@thesilhouettelady.com, or visit my website, www.thesilhouettelady.com. Most of the work I do these days is organized as fundraisers for various organizations. So please contact me if you'd like any more information on that. I'm also doing a lot of my work by uh, photograph, especially since COVID. And I still cut freehand, but I use a photo in place of the live subject. And I have been doing a number of fundraisers this way too. Deborah O'Connor, you are the renowned silhouette lady. And you get the last word. So I was wondering if you would just spend a moment or two and uh, just give us some final thoughts. Well, I hope I've encouraged some people to think about having their silhouettes created. If you haven't actually seen silhouettes of somebody that you know, you really won't understand that magical quality that they possess. And it's not an art that should just be thought of as old-fashioned. It's really as contemporary as the person that's sitting there in the chair. It's a fine art form and it has its own unique place in the world of portraiture. And thankfully, it was never completely displaced by the invention of the camera. Hey, I'm looking at the clock and you know what? It's time for me to go. Thank you for tuning in to the 29th of April 2022 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are so glad to have you here. Now, the Greenwich a Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. We are very, very grateful to our sponsors and supporters. Thank you so much. And by the way, you are welcome to join that growing list uh, by contacting me anytime at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. Now, by the way, you can learn more about the show, which comes out every Friday. You can also listen to past shows for free by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons.blogspot.com. If you would like to sign up to be on my email list, I invite you to do so again by 
contacting me at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. You know, both the show and I are on Facebook and Twitter, so please look us up and and uh, and give us a like or whatever. <laughs> Speaking of Facebook, um, I, I invite you to look for M to join any of a number of these thriving Greenwich, Connecticut groups. Now, their names include, you know, you're from Greenwich If... Images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, the Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, and also to a nod to our neighbors, the Portchester New York Historical Archive. And we have other groups as well. My friends, our next show is, is scheduled for Friday, the 6th of May, 2022. By all means, please enjoy your weekend. Please enjoy the podcast and listen to the ones that we had before. And I look forward to being back with you next Friday. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.